Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to the first ever episode of Shankman on Money. I'm Jonathan Shankman. This week, I'm going to highlight some timely articles I recently published and important takeaways for all investors. Additionally, I'll also answer listeners' questions. And finally, I'm going to end with a quote that will hopefully provide important perspective for investors. Well, with that, let's jump into some of the articles. The first piece I want to highlight is an article I wrote for the Jewish press on March 30th entitled, Is My Money Safe in a Bank? This is a timely concern since Silicon Valley Bank was one of the largest in the country and it imploded. Shortly afterwards, Signature Bank, which is also significant in size, went belly up as well. Many people may have not heard of Silicon Bank since they focused on startups and venture capital firms primarily. They were still a massive institution. In this article, I addressed the unique issues associated with Silicon Valley Bank, namely that their clientele were quite homogeneous, focusing primarily on one area of the market. Also, the bank did not have proper risk management in place since they invested too much of the customer assets in long-dated bonds that plummeted in value as interest rates went up. The combination of these things made Silicon Valley a unique situation. I wrote that if you work with one of the larger banks that have proper risk management in place, your money should be okay and definitely beats all the risks of having money sitting in cash. My next piece was a letter to the editor at Barron's on March 30th on retirement risks. I commented on an article that discussed the importance of focusing on financial planning a decade before retirement, which is crucial to making the most of one's golden years. However, I emphasize that retirement planning is also lifestyle planning, meaning in the years prior to retirement, you should have activities lined up that provide structure to your day, intellectual stimulation, and social engagement. Activities that offer these three pillars will immensely benefit a retiree's quality of life, finances, and long-term well-being. It's worth taking the time to find activities in your own life that possess these three qualities to ensure your retirement years are meaningful and fruitful. On April 7th, I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal Online, which was actually republished in the print edition of the paper, which discussed the need to make it easier for retirees to figure out how to invest and spend their savings. And I discussed how major strides have been made in the accumulation phase of retirement planning. This includes features such as automatic enrollment into company 401k plan, automated escalation of contributions, and default investment options. However, I discuss how little innovation has been done with respect to the decumulation phase of retirement planning. Retirees cannot easily determine the optimal way to generate income from their various income streams and assets. There is also no easy way to establish a safe withdrawal rate based on all of a retiree's assets and income sources. In other words, factoring all your accounts, pensions, social security, and other income streams, how does a retiree know how much money they can pull out and not outlive their funds? I suggest that easily accessible software should be developed for the masses to achieve this goal. I also indicate that a feature should be available to screen the marketplace in order to find a suitable SPIA, 
or single premium immediate annuity that can help close any gaps with retirement cash flow. A SPIA essentially gives the investor a stream of income for the rest of the retiree's life and is guaranteed by the insurance company. If you'd like to see a stunning sketch of me in the paper and this article in print, you can check it out in the April 20th issue of the Wall Street Journal in the Encore section on page R2. The next article was in the theme of Passover, which we just celebrated, and I wrote for the Jewish press a piece entitled The Four Sons in Striving for Investment Simplicity. I discuss one of my favorite parts of the Haggadah, which is the section about the four sons. For my non-Jewish audience, the Haggadah is a book used to guide the Passover Seder. In it, there is a section about four sons, which is rich with symbolism. One son is wise, one is evil, one is simple, and one doesn't know how to ask. The moral of the story in the Haggadah is that each son represents a different point of a person's life, going from a baby who does not know how to ask to simple, young son in elementary school perhaps, the evil son draws parallels to an angsty, rebellious teenager. Finally, the smart son represents a seemingly wiser and more experienced self. The moral here is that at the Seder, we're meant to withdraw, we're meant to draw in and speak to everybody around the table at their own personal level, regardless of how young, old, ignorant, or experienced they may be. From an investment perspective, the four sons can resemble the different stages of an investor's journey. Understanding this progression can prove insightful in order for investors to recognize where they are in their own investment journey. The ultimate goal is not to become the smartest investor and identify with the wise son. Rather, it's my view, it's to attain investment simplicity and to identify with the simple son. On April 12th, I was quoted in a piece from Bloomberg about I-bonds. For those who don't know, I-bonds were all the rage last year when inflation peaked, and I-bonds were paying around 9.6% interest. They also are backed by the U.S. Treasury, which makes defaulting highly unlikely. The yields have dropped to a fraction of what they were. Various financial professionals weighed in on this article, um, debating the merits of I-bonds. The piece discusses these bonds, have these bonds lost their luster with yields set to plunge below 4%. And my focus was on viewing investing in I-bonds in a wider context, which is really the way to view any potential investment. In the case of I-bonds, one thing that gets lost in all the buzz around inflation and the attractive yields is that they are not a path to wealth, since there are limits on how much money an investor can put into an I-band, which is usually capped at $10,000 per social security number with some exceptions, and the high probability these bonds will underperform stocks as inflation cools down. This big picture perspective is important when ascertaining whether I-bonds are a good fit for your portfolio. And finally, I was quoted in an article for Fortune that was also republished in Yahoo Finance on April 14th that discusses whether investors should take a 5% return by parking their portfolio in cash and waiting out 2023. This 5% refers to either money market accounts and short-term treasuries, which actually all yield a bit less than the 5% as, as of the recording of this podcast. I made the point that deciding when to go in and out of the market is a form of market timing and should be avoided. Meaning if you want to hide in a money market account or treasuries and collect a, a nice yield, that's fine. But it's important to understand that the stock market may surge in value and you may miss the rally if you are hiding in cash. I mentioned there are several ways to minimize the volatility with your money and collect a decent return, including in CDs, money market accounts, and ultra short duration bond funds. All these options have different yields and risks and investors should be aware of that. At the end of the day, one's portfolio should be structured based on their goals. 
time horizon, and risk tolerance. Using yields as the single factor for structuring your portfolio is the wrong approach. Okay, that's it for the articles this week. And remember, you can get you could get or see these articles I mentioned today in the episodes notes section to this podcast. You can also be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. And if you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at shankmanwealth.com, and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. Uh, I got talked into buying a whole life policy almost 10 years ago. When I hit 10 years on the policy, should I surrender the policy and invest the proceeds, or at this point, just stick with it? This is a really good question. It really depends on the policy, how much cash value you have built up, and your goals. Depending on the circumstances, you have a few potential options. One, you can get rid of the policy, chalk it up as an expensive mistake, and move on with life. Two, you can stick with the policy because the coverage is necessary, and since you may not be able to find affordable coverage elsewhere based on your age and health. Or three, you can explore doing what's called a 1035 tax-free exchange to another policy where it may be possible to lower your annual premiums, increase your coverage, or both. The trade-off is using your built-up cash value in the policy to do this. If cash flow is an issue or you need more coverage, this is worth considering. Again, this all depends on your unique situation, so it's worth speaking to an advisor to walk you through your options. I would, however, avoid speaking to the person who sold you this policy because it doesn't appear to have been a suitable solution when it was initially sold to you. Next question, how much should we spend on a Hussens watch for my son-in-law? For those folks not in the know, a Hussen is a groom, and a Hussen's watch is a watch that a groom's son-in-law, soon-to-be or soon-to-be in-laws, purchase for him after he gets engaged to their daughter. Uh, I think the word Hussen is in Yiddish. I admit I'm not exactly the authority on fashion and what is customary, but I never got this concept to begin with. There are many other things to spend money on that young couple will actually need and has utility, and a fancy watch serves no purpose, in my opinion. So my initial thought on this is don't get a Hussens watch in the first place since the concept doesn't make sense. The next option is instead of a watch, ask him what he actually wants. That would be better starting point than assuming he wants a watch. Maybe he wants a set of shots, a new laptop to do business to help support his new family. The list of practical options are literally endless and a watch is not one of them. Finally, if you're dead set on getting a watch, then it makes sense that it should cost the same amount as the engagement ring. While there may be an uproar at this suggestion, it is one way to help keep things equitable. Next question. Hard money lending pays me 12% annualized returns consistently. All you need to do is some due diligence, and you can count on that return. Why invest in stocks or bonds? First, no investment pays consistent returns. All returns fluctuate in value unless you're in a Ponzi scheme, which will not end well. Second, hard money loans are by definition loans that take place outside the normal banking channels because they are more risky. That being said, doing your due diligence does not change this higher risk profile compared to other investments. High risk means you have a higher chance of losing your money or not achieving your projected returns. Remember, just because you haven't blown yourself up yet does not mean it won't happen in the future. Unfortunately, you are likely ignoring the fact that you don't consistently put up the, the you don't put up the returns that you're claiming when borrowers miss a payment or pay late. However, you don't seem to be get hung up on those details. All that being said, if you have lo- if you love hard money loans, 
and then it should be sized in your portfolio correctly. This means 10% of your portfolio at most. Anything else, you'll likely end up regretting it. Stocks and bonds, if done correctly, are more liquid investments, easier to manage risk, and overall more prudent. Next question, and this one is about real estate. It seems to me that investing in multifamily real estate is a far more sensible than putting money into a 401k. You have more control over these investments, not to mention more tax benefits. Do you disagree? Well, multifamily real estate may be a fine investment as part of your overall portfolio, but should not be done in lieu of a 401k. You also shouldn't overlook the risks with investing in physical real estate versus publicly traded real assets versus other liquid assets like stocks and bonds. These risks include concentration risk, rising rate risk, tenant risk, natural disasters, leverage of liquidity. In short, you do not have as much control as you think. Conversely, you may actually have more control in a 401k than you think you do. You should have a myriad of investment options as well as choices of when you'd like to be taxed by using either pre- or post-tax contributions. In short, multifamily real estate has its merits and does sound sexier than 401ks, but sexiness does not lead to higher returns. Next question, given President Trump's indictment, what adjustments should I make within my portfolio? I said this many times to clients and friends, and it's always worth repeating. Politics should stay out of your portfolio. Just like other politically motivated events like the Russian investigation, Ukraine investigation, the refusal to release tax returns, email scandals, the debt ceiling, election results, don't let any of these things influence your investment decisions. What happens in politics and Washington, D.C. in particular is a sideshow. It may be fun to fight about on social media or with friends, but should not infiltrate your investment process. As much as you think these developments have clear investment implications, they don't. Design a portfolio based on your goals, time horizon, and risk tolerance, and stick with it regardless of the political environment, and you should be okay. Next, I am a person of means and getting on in years. Should I gift away my assets or let my heirs inherit my assets? This is a really good question that can be discussed at length. It's also worth speaking with your tax, legal, and financial advisors to ensure that you're making the optimal decision based on your goals. Both gifting and inheriting have their merits. On the one hand, there is the saying, better to give with a warm hand than cold hand, meaning you can give your gift during life instead of death and see loved ones or charities benefit from your generosity. And there's a lot of satisfaction with that. The downside to gifting is if it's not to charity and it's an asset, not just cash, the beneficiary of the gift will take on your cost basis, which is not an advantageous tax situation. On the other hand, if you are beyond the state or federal exclusion amount, then gifting is a sound strategy to minimize your future tax liability. When it comes to letting your heirs inherit your assets, there is work involved that, that in terms of planning and administrating the as assets, you will likely get a stepped up in cost basis, which is helpful from a tax perspective. You also may just need the assets and can part with them until death. The reality is you don't need to pick up one method over the other to get your assets where you want them to go. A strategy that incorporates both of these approaches is probably the best, again, including an attorney, CPA, or financial advisor into the discussion to help clearly define your goals and strategies to achieve those goals is the most sensible approach. <clears throat> Excuse me. My advisor told me we should maintain a 20% cash position and wait for the market to settle down before going back into the stocks. For some perspective, I'm 36 years old and feel that I should have a smaller cash position. Perhaps I'm wrong. 
Well, you're not wrong. Your advisor is trying to time the market. He or she is wrong. Timing the market doesn't work. Anyone can get lucky and get the timing right once or twice in the short term. But to do it consistently over a multi-decade time horizon is unlikely to succeed. If your advisor thinks that what they're doing is not timing the market or thinks that timing the market is a practical approach, then you should find someone else to work with who is more in tune with reality. If I have a considerable amount of money in an old employer 401k, am I better off rolling into my IRA or my new employer's 401k? Aside from fees, are there any other considerations or legal protections, etc.? Some states um, provide more asset protection from creditors in a 401k plan versus an IRA. You'll need to research whether this applies to your state. Practically, I've found that this added layer of protection doesn't apply to most people, and IRAs are sufficient. Another benefit to keeping it in a 401k is the ability to more easily make backdoor Roth IRA contributions without getting in trouble with the pro rata rules. Pro rata rules is a conversation for another time. Personally, in many cases, I think backdoor Roth IRA contributions are overrated and overhyped by tax professionals. $6,500 a year for a high-income individual is literally peanuts. A mega Roth 401k contribution is a bit more interesting, but not available to many professionals. Uh, this is also a discussion for another time. Uh, to reiterate, there are some benefits to a 401k, but there are also benefits to an IRA. Consider both before making any decisions. Next question is, I'm about to come into a large sum of money, lucky you, would it be silly to put all in the market at once or should I dollar cost average? This is one of those questions that I get repeatedly, so I'm, I'm sure I'll revisit this subject again. The best way to think about this is if you have a long time horizon, for example, a decade or longer and are not nervous when you see your portfolio fluctuate in value, then mathematically, it makes sense to put all the funds in as soon as possible since the market tends to move up over time. If psychologically this is too hard for you, then dollar cost average. Dollar cost averaging is a strategy that can make it easier to deal with the uncertain markets by making purchases automatic and regular. This strategy involves investing the same amount of money in a portfolio at regular intervals over a certain period of time, regardless of price. With all this, just make sure that you stick to a rules-based strategy, whether you stick to adding money and can't interfere with the process. Otherwise, you may be tempted so try not to go in and out of the market. As we said in a previous question, timing the market is not an effective strategy. I actually wrote an article about this topic for Kiplinger, um, so you could either email me or just Google it and you'll find it. My advisor works at one of the large wealth management firms, and he suggested I put 20% of my portfolio in alternatives. I plan on doing this even though I know you don't agree. I'm curious to know what you think the disadvantages are, so I go into this thing with eyes wide open. The main reasons are fees, underwhelming performance, and they are tax inefficient. When it comes to fees, every large firm will have placement fees, management fees, manager to the manager and advisor, and performance fees also to the manager and advisor. This puts you at a severe disadvantage from the onset since your performance needs to make up for all these fees. Additionally, the performance of many of these alternative funds may be mediocre at best. Sure, your advisor is selling you past performance that looks attractive because his marketing material has the benefit of hindsight to pick past winners. However, past winners won't help you in the future. Don't get suckered into investing with yesterday's winners. Finally, many of these investment managers don't manage money with taxes in mind, meaning there is either high turnover or they have other features which, with, which makes taxes a nightmare.
if the marketing folks at alternative investment firms were honest in their slogan would be, come for the high fees and stay for the underperformance and monster tax bill. Not a winning combination. It may make sense sometimes, but I have found many investors eventually arrive at this conclusion um, about alternatives. The final question this week is, how can I afford a firm lifestyle if I'm making less than $300,000 a year? Um, for my non-Jewish audience, a from lifestyle is an observant Jewish lifestyle, which means sending your kids to yeshivas, eating kosher, observing Sabbath, living in a Jewish community, etc., the cost of which tends to be relatively high. Um, I actually gave a webinar on this subject, which was 30 minutes in length, so this is just really an abbreviated answer. But there are plenty of practical strategies, but they may involve difficult choices. These include spending less money on discretionary items, such as traveling for winter break, buying new clothes every year, don't buy steak, and incorporate more rice and beans into your diet, moving to a cheaper locale, send to the cheapest yeshiva in the area, homeschool, get a more lucrative job, both spouses should work, work harder, get a side hustle, and others. None of these decisions are easy, and an entire series of podcasts can be given just on this topic alone. However, what I will say is that life and personal finances are all about trade-offs. If a from lifestyle is important to you, then the options I just highlighted should be implemented. Remember, kvetching about the high cost won't accomplish anything. Be proactive and things will work out. Now for this week's quote, which is by one of the one and only Warren Buffett, who said, I will tell you how to become rich. Be fearful when others are greedy. Be greedy when others are feel fearful. And this is an oldie but goodie. Um, and it's so true. When the market is plummeting in value, most people get scared and want to cash out. However, if you think about it logically, when markets stink, it's just on sale from where it was previously. This should lead people to want to add more funds at lower prices. Think about it. If prices on an item you wanted to buy on, on Amazon dropped by 20%, you would run to purchase it. You would not run away. The same philosophy should apply to the market as well. The key with investing is to have a process in place and to be able to stick with it regardless of what is happening. So when prices fall, you won't want to be scared. In fact, you won't be emotional at all. Remember, there will always be scary headlines, but if you have a sound process in place, then you will be successful. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.